Okay, hello over there. How's everybody doing tonight? Another gorgeous day out there. You're talking guests. How you doing out there? We finally got somebody to keep an eye on your wife. We've been crying. Lord knows we've cried. A couple things to pray for as we begin tonight. Uh, One of them is in response to a classmate uh, to pray for her, Gino Sargas. Jean's usually back there. She's our so-and-so lady, all this stuff here, and then some. And um, they think, you probably saw the email, they think what she had was a small stroke. Um, she doesn't remember things from this morning. She's at Wyandotte Hospital. Looks like they're going to keep her overnight for observation. So the good news is it wasn't, as far as I'm understanding, anything life-threatening, but they want to make sure because you could have something small that leads to something more. So we'll pray for Jean tonight. And then... I wanted to read this. This was an email pastor sent out. Liz Green, do you know who Liz Green is? Okay, if you don't know who she is, she's a flutist. All right, she plays the flute. All right, and um, she has been, it's an interesting thing. I thought, well, in light of this class and what we've been praying for, especially Colossians chapter 4, we've been looking at those verses week after week after week. Here's what pastor, here's what, uh, uh, this may have been, oh, this is uh, Rocky's email about praying, so I think he copied and pasted. But here's what he said about Liz Green. Liz Green has been witnessing to a woman, her name is Doris, who is a professing Buddhist. And Doris was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer last winter. Liz Green has been taking her to her chemo treatments and helping her out. Doris has been admitted to the hospital and they're giving her only days or a week. I mean, like, this could be her last week on Earth. She's only allowing two people to visit her, Liz and a Buddhist priest. And so uh, Liz is asking for prayer that God will give her opportunity, particularly tonight. So I thought, well, of all things, that's what we've prayed for, is that God would open a door for the Word. And certainly in the case of this woman, uh, Doris, this is that opportunity that could be one of her last. And uh, so as we start tonight, uh, let's pray for Jean and continue to pray for her. I'm sure Pastor will send out an update. And if we hear anything more on what happens with Liz talking with Doris, we'll let you know that as well. So let's start with prayer, and uh, we'll get rolling tonight. Our Father, we do thank you that your grace is not something that is just dropped in our laps at one point in our life, and then that's the end. If anything, Father, it is a gift that we keep opening and opening and opening and seeing the glory of your grace on so many different ways uh, throughout our lives. We thank you for that, and we thank you that what we have in Christ is not something that we sought or ever would have wanted, but you and your grace reached down from heaven's glory through Christ and opened our eyes to see the truth. And we would pray that tonight for this lady, Doris, coming from her Buddhist background, uh, she's looking for answers. She's realizing that what this world has to offer is empty, and Buddhists are trying to find a fulfillment of nirvana. And I just pray that you would help her realize before her days on, on end on this earth that it can't be found in this life. Uh, it's found only in eternity, but that decision must be made in this time, in this life. So we pray for Liz as she has the opportunity to be with Doris She's loved her. She's cared for her. She's been there for her. Uh, Lord, please give her that open door for the word 
with Doris to clearly communicate the gospel because even as we're talking tonight in this class about timing, uh, certainly the time is short and the time is now. So we pray that she be receptive and if you would be pleased to open her eyes to the truth and to make her your own. We thank you tonight that Jean Orsargas is your own and that because of that, you knew before this day began what would happen with her. And, and, and Lord, as we've been made aware of it, we pray that you will continue to help Jean and encourage her that she would know that she's loved by this church family, but even more so by you, and that she would be able, uh, if it's your will, by tomorrow to be back up and home, and that they will be able to make sure uh, completely uh, that there are no further complications or problems. So we pray that you give her a peaceful evening, allow her to have rest, give the doctors much wisdom, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last class, even though it's not the last lesson, uh, we could have gone to 12, but scheduling, me being, me being sick kind of made us lose one week. But the last one is really looking at the Great Commission, which is not something that is bad we didn't look at. And it's not to say, well, we all know the Great Commission, so we don't need to look at that. Obviously, I would encourage you to look at the article in there that is dealing with it. But a big part of what we wanted to walk through through the course's course was practical thinking because if I said, I think I said this at some point during this class, two of the areas that we struggle with the most as Christians is praying and witnessing. Um, it, it's almost like those are a, a subject that any pastor or teacher could preach or teach on and we're all going to feel guilty to some degree or another and, and maybe more so because we can sit and read a good Christian book for hours, maybe read the Bible for a half an hour, an hour. But when it comes to prayer, we get through our little list, and suddenly our mind's drifting off to other things, and, and suddenly we're, we're talking to God like we have a grocery list sort of thing. We ratchet through it, and all right, now I'm on with my day. And then God's left out there. And so same thing with this is we know that the church someday will die and be defeated if we don't realize it is not somebody's responsibility to share the good news. It's our responsibility. And yes, I can say that and just say a bunch of stuff and we all feel guilty and we go home feeling guilty. Well, that's not the point. The point is, what can we do? And and that's where we're coming tonight, to moving to a decision. And really, the it, it really when I saw that note about Liz Green with this lady, Doris, I mean, she is at that point of, this is now. Now, here's a lesson tonight. Moving to a decision. And I, I just, I mentioned this, this is where we pray in the light of it. This is our last look at this tonight. I just mentioned one thing from these verses that we have not touched on. An open door for the word, speak it clearly. Many things we looked at, but I just draw our attention to one thing. To declare the mystery of Christ. You know, we think of mystery of Christ, that's not something that's spooky or needs to be figured out. Simply the word mystery means, in, in the New Testament, is something that was previous, previously not known. And that is, it wasn't known. Even the Jews, even the prophets who foretold things about Christ, quite frankly, I am, I'm convinced that there's much they did not understand all the ramifications. Because no Jews thought that when this Messiah came, that he would first die, and then he would be king. They thought, he's coming, he's going to be the king, that's the end of it. Triumphal entry, that didn't go so well, he's going to a cross. So even when we think of all those things, um, 
the mystery of Christ is not something that is people have to try to figure it out. It's something that prior to the New Testament wasn't completely made known because when the Old Testament ended, they were concluding one thing. Well, many things. One most important thing. There is one God. Period. You get to the New Testament, you've got revelation that is just blowing their socks off. You're finding out that one God has three persons, and you didn't see that one coming at all. You might have caught it in Genesis chapter 1 if you're a Jew and you got Hebrew and you say, let us make man in our image. But even then, we can go, yeah, okay, they, they'd see that. And it's like, not really, because Deuteronomy 6 made really clear, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. All right? One Lord, one God, period. So when we're talking about Colossians chapter 4, the mystery of Christ is when Christ came on the scene, it was it was radical, it was not seen, it was not what they expected, that suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. They didn't connect that that was going to be the Messiah going through that before he was crowned king. And, and that's yet what God has done for us. He's opened our eyes to see something clearly that was previously not known, and quite frankly to Jews, still is not known, because they are still willfully ignorant. I mean, it's sad to go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and see people devotedly putting their prayers in there and bobbing back and forth and praying and devoted to Judaism, but still have missed the point that they've missed the real Messiah, and he's coming back. So that's what God has done for us. Now, here's the here's the $64,000 question, and this is where I'm old. There was a TV show called The $64,000 Question, and you know, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Because now it's like the $250,000 question or whatever. All right, but here's the question when I was looking at this lesson, moving to a decision. Because here is, in this first paragraph on 11.1, it says, at some point in our relationship with unbelieving friends, we have a, special, a spiritual duty to offer them an opportunity to trust in Christ by presenting the gospel. Before I read any further, the nagging question I know we often have is this. How do we know when? How do we know when to present it? And we and, and we, we might say, well, right away. Maybe. Um, but quite frankly, sometimes the reason we say right away is because we've come from a, a church or training that's like, you go after it quick. But quite frankly, a lot of people will feel like you just bowl them over and you don't really care about me as a person. You just want to tell me what you believe and what you think, you know. So that becomes a tension. And that's why he says in the uh, second sentence there, as we seek to share the gospel with our friends, good timing is essential. Our goal is to sensitively cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in their lives instead of coercing them. That's my issue there. And that is, let me just ask you, how do we know, just practically speaking, with somebody, it says instead of coercing them, how can we tell with people when they feel like they're being coerced? Can you give me some examples of how can you see from their response, their reaction, or body language that they're being coerced with the gospel? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of how they react. Yes? They'll, they'll close themselves off. They'll, they'll distance themselves from you. Absolutely. They'll shut themselves off. It's like it's like a parent talking to a teenager. The kids stand there, they're listening, but they're not really listening. They're in a whole other planet, you know. And, and they close themselves off. What else? What else do they do? Become defensive. Okay, they become defensive. 
you know that you hit a nerve, and sometimes we think, well, that's the Holy Spirit, so let's run with it. Uh, not necessarily. That may be that you you said something that made them feel, and this is part of what the issue is in this, in this article here, or this chapter, but particularly the article, and that is our goal isn't necessarily to play Holy Spirit. Our goal is to work with the Holy Spirit. What we struggle with is timing. Anything else that you've seen from people responding? When they feel quarters. Phyllis? My granddaughter would give me the silent treatment. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So basically, they get irritated, they get frustrated, they blow back, or they shut down. All right? That's pretty much the standard. So that's where at least we've got to remember we want that open door for the work. Um, I don't know because this was the first I knew of this story with Liz Green. I don't know if she's had opportunities or if she has had how receptive Doris has been. But I would venture to say at least she's let her stay in her life to this very end, not because she's pounded her with the gospel, but because she's been the one caring for her, taking her to the hospital, chemo, 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 and I'm going to let her be in my life to the end of my life. And of the two people that she's allowing in her life, only one has the answer. The other one doesn't. And, and that's not because she pushed and pushed and pushed. She really did what we're going to see in part of this article of she was a friend, a genuine friend. And that's, you know, and again, he even makes a point in the article, something to the effect that, well, isn't that kind of devious, kind of backdoor sort of thing? But here's the reality. A salesman, he's talking about salesmen. I'm just kind of getting off, and then I'll come back to the question. A salesman is pushing to do what? To close the sale to get something from that person, right? He wants to get a sale. Far different is what we're doing. We're not doing this to get something. We're doing it to give something. So I I wouldn't say it's devious. It it is if I don't like bait and switch church things where it's like, you know, tell people come to this and come to this, and by the way, while they're there, we blast them with a gospel gun, you know? Uh, I don't like that. You know, we'll, we'll tell them up front, we got a men's golf outing, and at the men's golf outing, halfway through the front nine, we'll have a little something to eat. Somebody's going to show the God. Somebody's going to talk about what God says, what's been done, and then we finish the other nine. Tell them up front, no problem. Just don't make them feel like, all right, this is like one of those sales gigs. They get you in the door, they tell you this, and it's really something else, you know, that sort of thing. It's like those deals you go to where they try to sell you timeshares, you know. Let me give you this free meal and free this and free that, and then let me bend you here for three hours, you know. Okay. So here's the $64,000 question, but I'll preface it with this. This is in the beginning part of the article with Aldrich, and he says this. It's a great point. It would seem that one of life's fulfilling and sought-after experiences would be sharing that good news, and that is because we've seen what it's done in our life, and we've seen what God does in others, that should be something that we would naturally want to keep pursuing. But, here's the problem. In reality, it's one thing that most Christians fear and avoid at all costs. Now, is it because we're bad, we're evil, we just say, hey, you know what, I'm going to heaven, so forget all the rest of you? It really isn't. It really oftentimes is an uncertainty as to what to say, when to say it, how to say it. So I come up with a $64,000 question. Here's what nags at me when we start this moving to a decision. How do I know when is the best time to present the gospel to someone and press our call for a decision? You know, And that's really what's helpful about this particular chapter. I'm glad it ends this way. 
because God has put people into our lives that we will have that opportunity. We think in terms of we got to do, we got to do, we got to do it. Now, there's two extremes we don't want to do. We don't want to be over pushy, coercive, but we don't want to be so laid back that this just becomes a casual friendship that never becomes anything about God anymore. We've gotten so comfy, cozy with them because we have a common uh, interest or whatever that it never gets there. You know, we need to get pushed there. So that's where we're trying to go tonight, and that is dealing with that nagging question. We want to move to a decision, but unlike a salesman, I'm not trying to convince them to get something or convince them to do something so I get something. It's caring for them and bringing them to a point to make a decision because God's going to give them everything. I mean, that's the best deal. This is not, I'm getting something out of this. But unfortunately, sometimes in church evangelism, it's almost like back in the pray the prayer that still still filters in churches. When you pray the prayer, it's almost like people get notches in their belts. You know, I, I led 20 people to the Lord this year. All right. That's great. You led them to the Lord. I'm tell you right now, you didn't save any of them. And we should all be leading them to the Lord, all right? Or I went out soul winning. Well, you didn't win any souls, all right? You've heard me say that enough times this semester. So here's where we want to go tonight with the time we have. And I, I have to confess something. I hate to do this. I don't like doing this. Um, it is not my nature to just end a class and run out the door. But i got to end the class and run out the door tonight because tomorrow, we were supposed to get on the road tomorrow to go down to South Carolina for my daughter's graduation, but found out from somebody that's traveling down there that construction is horrendous in Ohio for like two-thirds of Ohio. So we're going to try to get a few hours on the road tonight and then get through Ohio and then while it's off traffic. So when we do the amen, I'll still be here. It won't be like I, you know, like amen and I'm out the door. But, yeah. <laughs> like I'm packing up during my last five minutes of class and see y'all later. Or I'll have you pray and I'll be gone. You know? so, but I just didn't want to be like, I'm blown out of here, see y'all later, and ignore you. But that's that's our, that's our rationale. All right. So here's, here's where we want to go. Grasping the issue. I just highlighted one of the key questions, dead center, which is, again, getting into the issue that I think is what we're trying to wrestle with here in this chapter. What evidence should we look for in the response to indicate that they are ready to listen? All right? Now, we can misread that stuff, obviously, and we can run into things and go, I don't know. And it is, admittedly, if you've read the article by Aldrich, there's still a lot of subjectivity to it. They're just his. And, and yes, you are working in partnership with the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit knows exactly what's going on. I don't have that luxury. I have to do the best I can as I see it, but then I need some pointers perhaps, or at least some some checkpoint Charlie to see how do I know if I should go the next step. And that's really where I want us to go. So let's let's jump into the issue question. Oh, no, no, let's do this, because I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts in case some of you are able to do the homework, and if not, you can wing it tonight with this. Of these sound bites, there are six of them, one, two, three, five. Five of them, yeah, five of them. Um, When we're talking about moving to a decision, if you were able to look through this, did, was there any one of them, I mean, just one, that stood out like, in light of the chapter and the direction this chapter is going, this statement seemed to be the most helpful on that. Phyllis. Statement two. Statement number two, all right? It's important to progress in a relationship with someone to the point where you can share the gospel with them. That's the reason we build relationships with people in the first place. 
Anybody else go, yeah, that was mine? That was yours too? Two and five. Okay, two and five. What's five? We need to be sensitive to where people are in their journey of faith. They need to hear the gospel from us when they are at the most responsive point. All right, good. Any others? Okay. And I, I would tend to go with two or five as well. I mean, I think I start two, but I thought five. I just felt like, and it, probably the key thing that caught my attention in number two was that's the reason we build relationships with people in the first place. You know, we, we don't think that way. We think in terms of common interests, common personality, common family stories. That becomes our, our connector. That's not all bad. But it isn't just to add, well, you know, you could have 700 friends on Facebook, but quite frankly, you ain't get that many friends. I'm telling you right now, you know, you can keep going with it, but half the time, <laughs> you know who's on mine. Half like, okay, I know you, and you know somebody else that knows me, so click, yeah. And then I'm like, who is that? I have no idea. All right? So here's what we're looking at, and that is if we're going to move to a decision, that means we are starting with the assumption God has put us in the lives of other people to build relationships so that it can lead to Christ-oriented relationships. With believers, that still is Christ-oriented relationships. And with unbelievers, it is potential Christ-oriented relationships. And the same thing is, number five, is we, we want to... I look at those two things in those statements. One of them is the issue of building relationships. The other one is knowing when they are most responsive. Um, if we built that relationship, when are we at a point when they're most responsive? So that being said, let's go to point two. Okay. Study the scriptures, all right? Let's get distracted. Now, before we go to the scriptures, uh, I the question was, what is the question or issue? My, my stab at it in light of what's in our in the opening parts of our lesson was, and again, this is not something that isn't already said, but I'm personalizing. How do I know the best time and way to present the gospel through relationships that God has given me, all right? I'm assuming that God has put me with people because we've been looking at that from Colossians 4 for 12 weeks, 13 weeks, that God is opening doors for the word, and I want to make it clear. So that being the case... How do I know the best time and way to present the gospel? Because the assumption is I will, and I should, and I must. Um, where we wrestle with and what puts us in, in anxiety mode, or at least tension mode, is is this the right time? Is this, is this going to be bad? Is it going to be receptive? If I say it and it goes badly, is it done? I mean, that's, that's part of it, because he does address that in the article as well. So let's go to Romans chapter 10 in our uh, 11.2. We're going to skip Roberto for tonight. Um, 11.2 uh, is, is Romans chapter 10. And this is familiar verses. But familiar verses, we need to see a sequence and then try to together answer uh, the question we posed here. So let me just read these verses with us. <clears throat> but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. All right? So, we're looking at this scripture. I'm going I'm to jump into a rabbit trail in a minute, back to Romans 10.13, but let's not do that quite yet. These are verses talking about how someone is saved. Matter of fact, two different verses say two different things, but both conclude the same thing. If you look at verse uh, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. says something else, goes down to verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So which is it, verse 9 or verse 13? Okay, and the answer is yes. All right, it's the whole package. All right, but I, I want to explain something about that when we talk about the Romans Road and how we have unwittingly locked our thinking into the pray the prayer done. All right, there's a point we got to recognize of God working in our lives. Now, here's the question over on eleven dot three that asks if you read through this or if you caught some of it tonight or you had the time to be able to prepare this. The question says this, how does this passage, Paul writing to the Roman believers, how does this passage challenge, or you can put it this way, I wrote in my, my question, I just added to think this way, how does it challenge or motivate us to take bold steps to introduce our friends to Jesus? Because we think the word challenge can be like, well, that's negative. Well, it's not. It's challenge in the sense of challenging us to do it. So I'll put an even more positive, motivate us. What is said in these verses that can challenge, maybe challenge is more kick us in the backside to get us going. Motivate can be more like something to get us to pull us because we want to go for that. But what do we see in these verses that moves us to take that step? And here's what I'm saying. I'm assuming that we know we should do it, but we've gone into passive mode. We're building friendships. We're building relationships. We know our neighbors. We know our coworkers. But we're not really doing anything to try to build redemptive relationships. They're just neighbors. They're just coworkers. They're just golfing buddies. All right, something like that. All right, Phyllis, you got your hand up, or are you just trying to keep the B away? All right. I wasn't sure if you're ready to do the, you know, karate well, kid and grab the bug. I don't know if it's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cal will tell me. Um, yeah. Well, God has made the decision really, really simple one. Mm-hmm. He's made it so simple. It's like a no-brainer for mm-hmm. us to transmit that information in a few verses mm-hmm. to another human being. Right. And let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Right. Absolutely. Well, here, here's where I get picky. Here's and Your answer was right. Absolutely. And this is how we would all think. Here's where I get picky on this and push harder, push back. We all answer out of our Christian background experience. Where I want to push to is how, because it says, how does this passage, these verses that we just read, what here is pushing us, challenging us, motivating us in these verses 
to take that step to introduce our friends to Jesus. Because everything you said, Phyllis, was absolutely right. And it's the things that we would all answer exactly like you said, because you're dead on. Where where I'm trying to make us do is, I don't want to just pull from our Christian experience. I want to make sure we're pulling from these verses here, because that's what it's making us do. Think scripturally in light of it. Now, I saw Jenny, I saw another hand, and somebody maybe waving at the beach. So we'll Jenny and then over to Kim. Um, well, in this passage, it talks about there's there's a I hate that I'm using this because you just said it's not just this, but mm-hmm. it's what I have written down, and I feel like I'm meaning something a little different. But so I might use some of the same words, but it's all good. Um, there is like a it's like dominoes. Mm-hmm. You, in order for them to believe, they need to hear, and in order for them to hear, they need to be preached to, and in order for them to be preached to, they need to. Somebody needs to be sent, right. and that is us. And you know, because we've heard it, we know this. We can, we have the ability to preach to them so that they can hear, so that they can believe. Absolutely. So, yeah. so absolutely. And and what you said, I just wrote down in this way: the sequence of salvation demands messengers, mm-hmm. because the sequence that she alluded to right there is. And that's why we're talking about what challenges us or what motivates us. Well, God has said, here's the sequence, and without messengers, it ain't happening. And and we can debate the whole, what happens about the people who don't hear in Africa? They don't get saved. They don't go to heaven. Because the sequence breaks down without messengers going there. Um, And that's part of the challenge. So you're, you're right on. And that is, it is a sequence, verses 14 and 15, but it, it's motivating us because it says the sequence demands messengers. We are those messengers. When we fail, when we quit being messengers, the sequence breaks down and people no longer believe. Um, and that's the hard part. So there's a motivation. Anything else you see there? Because there's a, there's a few. I just jotted a few of them down. Anything else? Phyllis? I think God has made it pretty clear to us that that is an important element because he said that he's not going to... You know, nothing new is going to happen until until all have heard, mm-hmm. all have had an opportunity. I mean, yeah, yeah we have transport radio now, mm-hmm. and even in the fifties, um, I'm not forgetting his name, with the Alka Indians, uh-huh. Elliot, Jim Elliot, Elliot. Jim Elliot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there that was the reason they went mm-hmm. was because all need to hear. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else you see in these verses? Anything else that's like, here's something else that it says that either challenges, motivates us, kicks us, stirs us, or should? Let's put it that way. Jenny was talking to me, so I'm not sure what you said. No problem. Well, let me throw one at you, all right? <laughs> and I'm trying, I'm trying And you got to understand, I'm asking you to do something. They're asking us to do something. But I had to do the same, make myself focus, almost like a horse with blinders. Don't look at anything around, look straight ahead. You know, it's like blinders on, all right? The horse of blinders. I had to make myself go, all right, what is this passage? And I don't want to just say, well, it's saying, and I say some Christian-y thing that maybe sounds all Christian-y, but it doesn't have anything to do with these verses. But one thing I do see from verses 11 through 13 is the offer of salvation is for all people. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a motivation. There is a challenge. It is for all people. It's not for the people I just like or the people that I am comfortable with talking about this. It's for all people. So there's a motivation. There's a challenge that I've got to keep in mind. All right, he is telling us. 
it's for all people, and, and, and they hear the scripture, but if the sequence breaks down because messengers aren't going, that's verses 14 and 15. And I'll just throw one more on the table, and this is a strange one, because we don't think this way. This is quoting from Isaiah at the end of this, this passage, down to verse uh, verse 15. How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. All right? And I still remember I had a youth pastor teacher, uh, Dr. Fremont. You remember Dr. Fremont? I was going to say, I thought Val would know Dr. Fremont from way back in the day. He was our, when I was a student and I was studying Bible at Bob Jones, he was our the, talk, the guy that taught on uh, youth ministry, all right? And I remember him giving an illustration that he talked about this verse, and he he had gone in, and people didn't know this. I don't think he told his wife at the time. He was a youth pastor, youth pastor, did a lot of stupid things. Uh, Bender had done that. But he purposely went in, didn't quite wear socks, and he planned right before he was going to preach how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He takes his shoe off, plops his foot up on the podium, there's his bare foot, and says, how beautiful are the feet. And then he uses his text, all right? Well, obviously, he was trying to get their attention because you're working with teenagers, and teenagers are on planet Pluto or beyond, and you want to get them to your planet. So I understood what he was doing. You know? humor. Yeah, absolutely, whatever it takes within, within limits. But the point of motivation is... Here's what can encourage us. It doesn't matter what you and I can do or can't do, what we're good at doing or not good at doing. Because I'm telling you right now, I got 10 thumps. I am the least handy dude. I fix it so no one else can fix it. I break it, you know, it's just what it is, all right? And I, I, I deal with it, it's just what it is. But even if I am good at something, there's nothing that Scripture says that is more beautiful for me to do than this very thing right here. It doesn't matter if you are the best of the best at whatever. If this is what we do, that's a beautiful thing. You know, that's something. And it's not something to go, hey, had a boy, you got beautiful feet, wait, good job. But it gives us, that's why I said this passage challenges or motivates us to say, hey, in the sight of God, there's nothing more beautiful than being that messenger going to the next city, which is the picture they would have had in their mind. Who, when he gets to that city and heralds that message, he doesn't have beautiful feet. Because in their culture, they have really dirty feet. Jesus washed their feet because they live with sandals in a dirty world. The point wasn't the beauty of their feet. The point was the beauty of them being willing to take that message. That's what made their feet so beautiful. It wasn't the looks. It wasn't the smell. It was none of the above. It was those feet took them to somebody to get them that message. Doesn't have to be to China. Doesn't have to be to Indonesia. Doesn't have to be to Dominican Republic. It can be your neighbor across the street whose garage just burned. You know, sounds like wow, um, or whatever. Whatever the case may be, um, God uses different situations. Now, because of time, I'm not going to read through this because it's very lengthy. It's the testimony of Paul when he's uh, in his early stages of trial. Uh, on his way to Rome, he's standing before King Agrippa. I think this is a familiar text to you if you've read through if you've read through Ephesians, if you've read through Acts before. And and Paul is he is talking through his testimony. This is the third or fourth time to think through in the book of Acts where he goes in great detail of his testimony, and this is the last one. And he's talking before a king who has a lot of authority. 
the questions that we posed here, and the reason I'm going through this quickly is because I want to get to the article and then maybe have some last end last night discussion. Um, we asked two questions. Um, in this article, it says, go to page 11.4. Sorry about that. I'm looking at it. You're just, I'm assuming you're knowing what I'm thinking. He has stood before Festus and Agrippa. He's sharing his testimony. As he's sharing his testimony, he's weaving in things from Jewish culture, Jewish thinking, but most importantly, what transformation took place from where Paul was religiously before where he is now, and what brought him there. What brought him there was Jesus Christ, all right? And that's what he wants to make clear. But the question on 11.4, the first one says, how many times does Paul appeal to Agrippa's prior knowledge of Jesus in the Old Testament Scripture in these verses? All right, now here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to go through all these verses and try to count them. As best I could, I counted three. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe he came up with four or five or ten. I only counted three if I'm understanding the question. He appeals to Agrippa's prior knowledge of Jesus in the Old Testament. He had heard about Jesus. He knew a lot of the Jewish teaching from the Old Testament. He appealed to it. Now, so let's just say we all got the same answer. The answer is three. Here's the second question, and this is really, I don't know the answer because I didn't write these questions. You know, So I'm looking at what's the answer. Why do you think he does that? Why does Paul appeal to King Agrippa? Why doesn't he just lay it out straight and say, here's what I believe, and here's where I'm going, blah, blah, blah. Three different times, at least three different times, he says to him, and he acknowledges that King Agrippa knows these things, and he makes reference to that. Why does he do that? And I'm just, honestly, I'm looking at there are no wrong answers necessarily. Why do you think he's doing it? It puts the grip at ease. I mean, you know this already. You've heard about it. I'm not telling you anything new. Yeah. You know this. And, and that's a great point. Why do you want to do that? Where is Paul in relation to King Agrippa and this whole who's in uh, who's in the place of prominence, preeminence, authority? It ain't Paul. All right? Paul's standing there in front of Agrippa. Yeah. What else? Anything else? I'm sorry? He's intrigued by him. Okay, absolutely. So we're not asking for him. Yeah, so he, if he wanted to hear, if, you know, it was, if Paul took advantage. That's a great point. Paul took advantage of the fact that, well, he didn't just go, yeah, make a decision and get this thing over with. I want to hear what this guy has to say, so you arrange it, Festus, and we're going to hear. And so Paul saying, you've heard these things, you know these things three different times. Anything else? Any other observations? Here's what you think. Why? I'll, I'll, I'll throw out to you my shot in the dark. I really don't know. But it's something, I, I thought of it this way because this is what we sometimes do. It was what I just called common ground. And that is, he said, you know these things. You know these things. Or you've, you've heard these things. You've, so... It's like we do sometimes with an unbelieving person. We've gotten to know, oh, you know about Jesus because you know about him dying on the cross because they're Catholic background or they're whatever background. So it's one of those things where it's taking some of the angst out of the moment and saying, hey, we got common ground. You know these things. Maybe deferring to him as king. And, you know, we're not going to ever be in that position to deal with a king or a prime minister or a president or whatever. But we do face 
having to find ways to not be offensive to people, even though the gospel itself can be offensive. How we deliver it, how we're building that relationship, we're working at, in light of our culture, how best to do it. And that's why that question is hard, because here's exactly what we're going to do when we answer that question. Why do you think he does that? Well, 2,000 years have gone by, and our cultures, our countries, our lives are vastly different. So that's a really hard one to think of, because we're going to think in terms of 21st century America. Here's why I think he did it. All right, So that one's kind of a really subjective one. But I think all of these things we said are valid in the sense that there are things that we need to do with people so that we don't, like is said in the article, that you, if you get a chance to read it, we're not trying to make people feel or look stupid when we're talking about the gospel or make them feel like I ask a really loaded question and the way I asked it makes them kind of be put on the spot. Um, that's not what we're trying to do. Now, is it is it okay to do that at some point? Maybe it will. I mean, maybe... Liz Green is at that point with her friend that she's tried to tiptoe with the gospel gently with her, but now she's going to have to go, you know, you just had the doctor tell you, you got days. And are you certain that what you've been hearing from your Buddhist priest and Nirvana, that you're anywhere close to that, and what does Nirvana look like on the other side of death? Because the other side of death for Buddhists is you're coming back in another form. Now, reincarnation and some of that stuff that we've been there's all kinds of things we've been there. Nirvana is reaching this whole completeness. Well, what if she feels like on her deathbed? I haven't hit all those levels yet. What kind of hope do you have when, when the when the heart monitor goes like that? You know, what's it like for you? So she might have to step up to that. All right. So that's that's a tough question, but I think it's a good one to make us think in terms of people got put in our life. <coughs> now, the the fourth question that I had us just consider from this text, this time of Paul talking with Agrippa, presenting his case as well as his testimony, his ministry. It says, the fourth question is, Agrippa asked Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? The question is, how had Paul tried to persuade Agrippa in the speech? Now, because we didn't read it, you might not have had time to look at it today. Let me just give you a a simple, but again, this is not a definitive answer. This is just my subjective answer to this and that is the reason Paul tried it how had how had he done this and it seems that Paul had done this by weaving the gospel clearly through his testimony and his mission he didn't just lay out here is Romans 3:23 Romans 6:23 Romans 5:8 Romans 10:9 Romans 10:10 Romans 10:13 boom would you like to pray and ask the Lord to save you and then you'll be saved um, and, I, and I'm being very facetious in saying it that way okay What he did do was talk through and walk through what happened in Paul's life. Why he was standing right there in front of that king at that moment was because of Jesus Christ. It was because of this spiritual journey. And if you read the article and you saw the word spiritual pilgrimage, I like that word. It's like old. It's too old, right? We'll talk about spiritual journey, all right? Pilgrimage sounds like something from King James 1611 version. Let's update it to journey. But the whole point is, that's exactly what Paul shared, his journey. And in doing so, he he was trying to persuade Agrippa, not by just, let me say enough things to make you feel like going all the way back, if you remember our, one of our first, maybe our first class, when I was referring to that uh, the man who wrote 
soul winning made easy. And he talks about how you can just kind of work them and work them and say it a certain way and then make them feel guilty and make them pray the prayer. And, man, you're going to be successful in this. That's not what Paul was trying to do. He was saying, here's where I was. Here's where God's taken me. Here's what this mission's been all about. And here's why I'm standing here today. And you know this stuff. You've heard this stuff. You know of Jesus. You know the Old Testament. So he brought it all to bear. His is different. He knew he had a one-and-done deal. Um, a one-and-done deal for us is like being on a plane next to somebody. Probably never be that by that person ever again. Right? That's a one-and-done deal. So yeah, sharing the gospel like that, that's maybe a little different. We don't go, well, I need to build a relationship with them. And then, you know what? It's only an hour, two-hour flight, and then you don't see them again. So there's different ways. And Paul knew that was a one-and-done. And he had been given a... Carte blanche. Say what you want to say. Tell us, and we're going to make a decision. So he did. Now, let's jump to the article. Now I'm going to put the scriptures up here. Jump to the article. The article is your personal message of evangelism, and it was it was a very practical article. And the time will only allow us to look at a portion of it. And I really want to hit on a couple of key portions of it because I think what what. Aldrich has done, and the reason I, I just pick at, and like, I'm not trying to be silly or whatever about, I don't like the word pilgrimage, understand this book, if you saw the, the title that came from Lifestyle Evangelism, this book was written in 1981. So how we talk in 1981, and the lingo we used back then in church, isn't necessarily how we talk today. And if you say the word pilgrimage, it almost sounds like you're walking the Via Della Rosa with the rest of the Catholics, you know, to the, whatever. No, that's what they're thinking of. But you're going to Mecca, you know. Yeah. That's what I think when I think pilgrimage. So at that time, that was probably the cool word to say, the word I would probably say your spiritual journey because we're all in a journey. I mean, that's just, I will admit that to everybody. God has put us with a trajectory on a, when I say spiritual, spiritual means we being spirit beings, unlike any other created living beings on the earth, we have the potential to relate to God. No other animal can do that. So we are on a journey, God has put us to, in a sense, as Pastor was preaching from Acts 17, that they may perhaps, by the boundaries and habitations of where he has put us, to seek God. Now, the tension, I mean, here's a tension right here, that they perhaps might seek God, Acts chapter 17, Luke recording that. But Paul would then write to the Romans, nobody's ever going to seek God, which is not being contradictory, this is another rabbit trail. Give me like one minute for a rabbit trail. It's like me asking the question when I was in China. Why did God create foreign languages? Because Genesis 11 is crystal clear. God created foreign languages. And I can look at foreign languages as a as a, a an obstacle or a wall to the gospel. Because it's not enough to just learn the language. It's understanding the culture, understand how they use it. Because... Yeah, I had Chinese kids learning English, and they'd use big old honking words and big old... And like, we don't talk like that in America. We just don't. And we do the same thing. We learn Chinese, and like, we don't talk like that. We don't even think like that. So they had to get that. So I had to ask the question, why in the world did God do that? Because when we look at Genesis 11, they were all together. And God gave them these languages, and they're all scattered. Well, I, I wrestled through that, wrestled through that, and I someday will give you a PowerPoint that I've used before. Maybe I used it in the community. I can't remember. But it came to that end in Acts 17. And that is, 
God has provided the boundaries and habitations of people. He did that through confounding the languages. I mean, literally, it's like, this is how it would be, how freaky it would be. You're in the room, and we're all talking English, and God confounds the language so that perhaps you cannot even talk with your spouse or your friend in this room anymore. You don't even understand what they're saying. And what happens with people, and that happens is when, you know, the whole planet has that, you start gravitating toward people who you can understand. And that becomes a people group and another people group. Because here's the reality of Genesis 11 and the reality of end times. When the nations pull together, the nations together, their natural response is to rebel against God. When they are divided into smaller pockets, there is more potential for them to humbly submit to God. But the reason it will be a one-world power, one-world government is because in that power they will conclude there is no God, we can win, just like it seemed pretty tame. Let's build a tower that reaches to God. Well, if you build that tower to reach to God, you kind of brought God down to you. And they were saying, let's make us a name. Well, you're not there to make us a name. You're there to make God a name. So that's my tangent. And that is the whole point is God has, and we saw in, in Acts chapter 17, even confounded the languages for redemptive purposes. He did that not to be an obstacle, but quite frankly, a stepping stone for the gospel. Uh, because people would, as a, as a bigger nation, like an Arab-speaking nation, like a, a, a Chinese-speaking nation of 1.3 billion people, there's power in numbers, especially when they're indoctrinated by their government and their, and their educational system that there is no God. All right, Now you've got people convinced that's part of the problem. All right. Six minutes. Yay. Determining readiness for the gospel. Go to page 11.6. Because this was the $64,000 question that I wrestled with, and I thought, hey, he's got some good, helpful points. How do you know, underneath that big caption, how do you know when you've reached that this decision point that they are ready for us to give the gospel? And again, there's a generation that used to say, you give it to them right away, all right? What are you waiting for? Be bold. Be bold with the gospel. Uh, there's boldness and there's balance. There's fine line of faith and foolishness. You know that's part of what we're looking at. So he gives some practical things, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. Um, he he gives six different um, ways that again these are subjective things, questions that you can ask to see if you have plowed some ground to be able to take it to that next step. And here's one of them. Number three, do you sense that your neighbor enjoys being with you? All right? I think in Liz Green with this lady, Doris, that is obvious. Yes, she feels comfortable. Comfortable enough to let her be with her to her dying days. All right? So, yes, if somebody, every time they see you, it's like it's like back in the day when people were selling Herbalife and what other things that they would sell in? I mean, I think of things. What do people used to sell that, quite frankly, they would haul it into churches sometimes and suddenly take their... I mean, it's like selling uh, Amway. Amway. That's what I was trying to think of, Amway, all right? It's almost like I remember at, a, at Inner City years ago, there was a lady, nice lady, but once she got hooked into selling something, it's like over time, you avoided her like the play. It had nothing to do with the friendship. Suddenly it was like, hey, I got this latest product, whatever. You know, it's like, great. We'll sell somebody else, you know? But that's part of it, is that person, if... if all we're doing is just banging them over the head with the gospel, um, that's what we have to be careful. Does this person, and it's a practical question, does this person 
enjoy being with you. Maybe you're like, I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard read sometimes with people, depending on their personality. But here's number six that I think is helpful as well. What signs of openness have you detected? And he gives some, one, two, three, four, five, five things that can be good signposts along the way. They're, they have questions about religious things. If they're asking questions or making comments, the journey's moving forward, all right? That, if, if, if they're doing, like we said earlier, they're feeling coerced and they're doing this, they're shutting down or they're blowing back or they're getting cold, obviously that's not working. And, and, and that's like letter E, positive seeking attitude or general freedom to discuss religious concepts even though we grow up in this generation, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, is that it? Those two things, all right? And so if they're willing to do it, then this is, all right, it's moving forward. Again, that hasn't quite answered the question. So we go to the pilgrimage question. Uh, the pilgrimage question there on page 11.7 it says, mm, third sentence down underneath that, it says, what's next? Great question. Generally, it's time to ask some key questions, which test the water. But he says, here's a question that he has created. And I'm going to throw this up here. Uh, and honestly, rather than trying to write it down, if you want to write it down, I'll leave it up and you can take a picture of it. I used to do this in China because they would write feverishly when I'm teaching stuff. And I'm like, all right, I'm losing them. I'm losing them. So I'd be like, just take a picture of the screen. And all of a sudden, every Chinese, because they've got their, their phones, they're all like, chur, 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 you know, taking pictures of it, all right? But I tried to reword it slightly, all right? And that is, at what point do you see yourself on your spiritual journey, all right? So his question was, he said, Bill, we've never had a chance to talk about your own religious background. At what point are you in your own spiritual pilgrimage? So I only changed the word to journey, all right? But it's assuming that because, and here's what we're assuming, because we've seen that there is a readiness and a responsiveness so far, they're on this journey. Because they're on this journey with you. They're having these conversations with you. So it's a positive statement. Where do you see yourself in that? And then, depending on the response, determines how we go forward. Now, here's where time is pushing me to keep jumping quickly. Go to 11.7 under opportunity statement. Under that, that first sentence, under opportunity statement, says something very important about that pilgrimage question. It says, because the purpose of the pilgrimage question is, oh, okay, what's the purpose of that question? Here's what it's for. It's for him or her to pour out his or her religious beliefs, feelings, and concerns first. Usually I find that little, if any time, will be left for me during this initial time period. Catch what he said there. This isn't for me to go... Right, they gave that answer. Now, boom, I come in like gangbusters with the gospel. The point is, he said, I asked this question, and it's open-ended. Just let them talk. And he said, it may not be, when I ask that question and they respond, that I come back with my full, prepackaged, complete gospel presentation. It may be that, quite honestly, I say that for the next time. So they don't feel like... Well, you asked that question because you were just loaded for bear to come after me after you asked that question. And the reason I say that is go over to page 11.9. I'm having to just jump quickly here. 11.9. 11.9, look at the top left column, left column at the top. First full paragraph starts by saying, obviously, all right? Look down about... Go. 
Okay, yeah, here, here's what I want to say. Obviously, he says at any point in this communication sequence, the response could be negative, all right? You say, hey, can we set up a time to be together, talk about this, and no. Okay, that's not what the book says is going to happen. Okay, now what do I do? All right, now what? All right, it's like the JW going, now what do I do? All right? But here's what he says, and I think that this is a great takeaway to end our night tonight. He says, in the middle of that paragraph, don't panic. A negative response is expected. He says, don't panic. Here's positively two things. Praise God, he's expressed a positive response to the idea of discussing spiritual things. God is moving him forward. Salvation is a process. It comes to a point in time, but leading them to the gospel, leading them to Christ is that process. So praise God positively that we've gotten this far, but if it's a negative, then he says, secondly, back off. Continue to be his friend and wait for another opportunity. And that's what I really want to drive back to. What will give us a better sense of when it's right is if we continue to be that friend like we started with tonight and we pray tonight. Liz Green has been that friend for Doris, and that opportunity is still there to her dying days. We need to be that kind of friend. And, and it may not take it to that point where Liz is with Doris, but we need to be courageous enough to step forward, have at least some simple, basic things in mind of how we can ask this question if we've been with them a while and then have some checkpoints in our mind of, all right, they responded that way, so I just need to back away and listen for a little bit and, and, and make them realize I am their friend. I genuinely care about them. I don't have an agenda because sometimes when we share the gospel, we can come across as we have an agenda. Um, we're really here to get to our agenda. I'm just kind of putting up with what you're saying so far. Yeah, people, nobody likes to have a conversation like that. We don't like to talk with somebody who feels like they're listening, 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 but they are just waiting for you to breathe. And then, here they go. Now, we want to be that friend. And hopefully God will give us that opportunity. All right, for me, it has been a, a, a joy to be with you through these 13 weeks. At least when I didn't get out being sick or being gone. And thanks for enduring to the end. Hopefully... It will have motivated us, stirred us, or reminded us of our mission, the sequence that breaks down, but how that God has us in that sequence to be that voice, the beautiful feet, and ultimately to see his grace reduplicated through our lives as he's done in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the mercies that you have shown us today. We have life and breath, and we have so many things um, for Jean or Sargas, her life could have been snuffed out today, but you still have a mission for her. Our life could have been snuffed out today. We could have had a, a bad turn on our car, and our day, our life was over. But we're still here, so we still have a mission. That mission isn't simply just sharing the gospel. The mission is glorifying you. So help us, we pray, in all things to be alert to how we may do that so that you may give us opportunities to point people to our Savior, who is glorious. We pray in Christ's name.